Welcome to another episode of The Book That Blank, where we talk to interesting people about books that are meaningful to them. Today, we are here with my uh, all-time favorite professor from college, uh, Terrence Johnson from Georgetown University. So, Professor Johnson, can you um, please introduce yourself and talk about uh, what Nickel Boys um, is in terms of like the blank that it's filling and when you first read it? Uh, no, thanks, Jen. Uh, thanks to you and Miles for the invitation. Um, uh, and just excited to kind of have this experience. You know, the Nickel Boys, I think, really kind of exposed to me just another kind of tragic moment um, in, in Black life in terms of ways in which particularly Black boys and, and Black girls are treated in detention centers and, and how in so many historical examples, you know, Black people are robbed of their innocence, robbed of a childhood. And so um, I walk away with that kind of numbness right after reading it. Um, like yet again, another story that reminds us of how we have been just degraded, right? And subjugated throughout our entire existence here. Wow. So, yeah, man. I, I mean, I definitely came away with a similar impression. Um, but I'm curious, like, what, you know, uh, compelled you to pick up the book? You know, had, had you read Colson Whitehead before? Um, what was your, I guess, like, reactions while reading the book, too? Sure, sure. So I'd read him before, and but I'll be very frank, trying to um, sort of break out of my, you know, general mode of reading where I'm just reading books in my field about, you know, other academics, uh, about religion and politics or philosophers. And so the summer, my goal is to read, just like, just read literature, right? And, um, you know, it was one of these books, you know, on your times with Seller List, one to Pulitzer Prize, something like, okay, I should read this. And, um, and so I decided to buy it. And, uh, and to check it out. And so, yeah, so, but, but I can't say that um, I was drawn to it for any other reason other than I'm like, okay, this is something I probably should read. But I'm definitely happy that I, I picked it up. Yeah, I mean, my, my first thoughts after finishing this novel, you know, to be honest, I was like, who is this book for? Um, you know, as someone, you know, who's, been black in America for only you know 20, 23 years now. It feels like I had heard this this story told, even even though I you know didn't know the details of of this you know school, Dozier school that he's you know writing about. Um, and, I, and I was just I was just feeling a little uneasy and like curious, like you know why are his novels about slavery, and then this tragic novel about you know this this reform school the Pulitzer Prize winners? Why are these stories about trauma the, the ones that seem to be the most popular? Um, no, I think that's, that's a great, really kind of set of reflections, Miles, because when, when we think about other writers, say, whether it's Toni Morrison or even, even Baldwin, right, um, some of the great cla classic uh, writers, um, they were attempting to really show, right, the veiled life of, uh, Black America and Black Americans and many different life worlds that existed right behind the Du Boisian veil. And so I do think that's an appropriate question to raise. And I think at this particular moment, right, given that we're living through Black Lives Matter and about to probably enter in kind of post-Black Lives Matter, people are kind of hungry for historical narratives that kind of put things in perspective, but also 
give a fresh account. And, and so, but I think that question, I also want to come back to it later, but I do want to try to at least sit with the trauma, right? Because I think he, he tries to pl place it in a different context for us. So in other words, it's not the typical like, you know, police shooting, it's not the typical like gangbang or not the typical like, you know, rape, you know, onslaught of rape, although clearly sexual assault happens in the novel, but he tries to tell the story through this, the innocence of this black boy, right, Elwood, and like his desire, right, from a young age to go to college to work really hard and how like the world just always just sent him on a different course. Um, and as you know, he lands in the detention center because he's hitchhiked to school, to school on his way to take some college courses. And the guy who picks him up, an African-American, has stolen the car, allegedly. And so they both get, well, he gets sent to um, the detention center. But what, what I found interesting about, about this idea of him actually sort of, sort of falling into these sort of like, in some ways, sort of innocent kind of traps, right? You're hitchhiking and, and the guy you picture up has a stolen car. I think in some ways I was wondering, is he trying to show how even the kind of things that we take for granted, right? Um, sort of the casualness of life that maybe African-Americans can't take that for granted. Um, and I, I think there's some shocking reality to it that we have to face. Um, and, I, and I do think this is kind of, it's an appropriate moment in history to reflect on how shockingly, right, um, Benign that act was, and yet it landed him um, in a detention center. But I, but I want to read the prologue, but the first line, a couple of lines I thought were pretty powerful. Even in death, the boys are trouble. The secret graveyard lay on the earth side of the Nickel campus in a patchy acre of wild grass between the old work barn and the school dump. The field had been a grazing pasture when the school operated a dairy selling milk to local customers. One of the state of Florida's schemes to relieve the taxpayer, to relieve the taxpayer burden of the boys' upkeep. And I thought this idea of even in death, right, the boys were troubled. Um, and it just kind of reminded me of the ongoing sort of the haunting nature, right, uh, of black life that even in, in, in death, right, from the grave, people are screaming, right? And we're haunted by a certain kind of memory. Um, so the juxtaposed idea of this kind of haunting, like haunting us in death, and then how even in our innocence, right, we seem to fall into certain scenarios that then lead us to, right, this path toward imprisonment, another form of enslavement. I think it's kind of, it, it, it's interesting kind of juxtaposition I think we have to sit with. Um, and maybe Whitehead is trying to force us to kind of go beyond the kind of, um, I don't know, middle class, you know, ethic of saying, look, we can, we can, we can make this happen if you do all the right things and we pull together as a community. And in some cases, we see how a community pulls together and it's, they're still, you know, broken apart and destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, I think. This benign aspect 
seem to very important too, just in terms of the writing style. Like, yeah. he feels very cold uh, at times when he's like talking about the violence, right? When uh, Elwood is, you know, trying to stand up to the bullies when he figures out that, you know, both the innocence and the guilty are, you know, punished the same. We get that from when he's hitchhiking in his, in his car, right, too. Um, and, right, I think all of that is kind of haunted by this image of MLK, of like King, um, being this looming, you know, innocent figure. And I don't know, it, it feels like the innocence here made them feel like docile. They just weren't really agents. Um, and it om- almost felt like a critique of uh, King and, and his philosophy in general. Oh, yeah. And that's a really interesting point, Miles. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I, I mean, initially, I wonder, this is strange. Usually when you think of a kid going to the detention center, like the, the general motif is you turn to Malcolm X or you're going to be reading a black nationalist. So I was surprised that King is the one that keeps showing up. But you're right. I, you know, I think you're right because there's, there, there are points where I feel like, oh, what is innocence? It's more than innocence. It's almost like it's kind of it's kind of dumb at times. Like he doesn't like he doesn't have the social skills to recognize that, you know, when you're new to any kind of situation. You see something going down with, with, with boys you don't know. Unless you know you can take them out, you walk the other way. Even if you want to kind of intervene, usually if you don't know the lay of the land, and, and, and you know you can't take down three or four guys, then you then you kind of retreat, right? And even with the whole at the end of the novel, the whole letter he, he wrote about, you know, all all his whole I guess journal of all the things that have been happening illegally at, at the uh, at the at the detention center. I was like, why are you doing this? I mean, why are you giving it to to, to Turner? You're not even sure it's going into the right hands, and you, and why are you assuming that the person who reads it is going to care enough about? you and the boys there to actually make a change so you're right there is a way in which his innocence i think is sometimes leads him to make really really dumb decisions and i don't think innocence equates to dumbness but for some reason for him he's just not very socially adept um and, and so how this relates to king it's interesting maybe he is using king as a figure that needs critiquing but yet maybe and he's all, maybe he's also saying that King's early, the early King is far too innocent, right? In terms of his imagination of a dream. Although, you know, I would push back and say that people like, you know, Michael Eric Dice and others have demonstrated that King always had kind of elements of a kind of radicalism. And I think he, you know, he framed it in a way that was a bit more digestible early on to, to a wider audience. And I think towards the end of his life, he clearly was like, I'm rejecting this. And it was, you know, very, very vocal and very, you know, robust about his criticism of America. So I don't want to say that King is fully innocent early, early on, but I do think the way in which we imagine King, right, we assume that King is very, in a way, kind of innocent and, and, and not very um, realistic about his expectations of America. In fact, I think he always was realistic, but he was far more, far more strategic. I think in his early life, but that still doesn't answer the question in terms of how is Whitehead using King, and I, I think I, I'm going to agree with you, Miles. I do think that um he might be poking fun at King or poking fun at a King that we've imagined or that White America has imagined, and at the same time, King is a, 
this is again another symbol of of hope and maybe whitehead maybe the character feels fears that if he loses all hope then there's no future and so in some ways king as a symbol of hope is necessary for some people in order to just not implode or right commit suicide but to me that is part of the problem we have to address is that we always that it's i think at this moment in history it's very clear right that survival requires this bad faith believing in a lot so in some ways you need that symbol of hope to to keep the people calm but i wonder what your generation people are pushing to say you know what hope is great but it's not saving us and especially as we deal with right the precariousness of climate change i mean you can have as much hope as you want <laughs> But that won't prevent, you know, floods from wiping out towns and increasing, you know, mass migration. So, so to go back to your point, I think, I think he is forcing us. At least I'm reading it as you that we are kind of forced to kind of critique him and really kind of have a more reflective look in terms of how he's used by Elwood and. And you're right. I I think, you know, uh, the author is pushing us. And, and even if he's not pushing us, I think the way in which the novel unfolds, you're forced to ask a lot of questions, especially, you know, with the ending of it. And then it looks like he is. You know, he's assassinated at the very end. But I'm, I don't want to dismiss your point, but I'll say more because it's all, almost as if you're saying you felt detached from Elwood, even. You, you seem like you're still detached from him as a character. Why is that the case? Right, I don't want to just blame the style of the novel, but right, it just kind of felt like things just happened. Um, I guess it was the you know, third-person point of view, too, during the stories. Um, right, things just happened to Elwood to Turner from these, you know, reform school staff, there, there seemed to be little other depth other than a wood search for this higher order, you know, that, that he think that, that, that he thinks King embodies. I, I think without Whitehead possibly letting us into another side of him, possibly like a shadow or, you know, a side that seeks some revenge, he stares at his legs, right? And like the mirror from uh, being beaten with, you know, black beauty. And I, I just wish even at a time like that just seemed kind of empty. You know, the, the last book that we read um, on our podcast was the autobiography of Malcolm X with Lewis Gordon, actually. And, you know, even though he wasn't mentioned at all in this book, I was definitely thinking about him um, because he has this point that like when he was in jail, he noticed that the people on the inside of those prison walls and the people on the outside were exactly the same, but the people on the inside were the ones that got caught. Right. Um, and I think that this book actually made me realize that it's deeper than they just got caught passively. It was that, you know, the, the white, like white people, the, the systematic injustice, like needed to catch them off of this story that, you know, 
young boys of color are lots of trouble and need to be like disciplined even even the even the white boys for that matter um that they needed to be caught and i thought that was expressed through like the arbitrary nature of a lot of the reasons that they were in uh nickel academy in the first place um and because you know this was like a very um almost intentional like intentional by design uh institution to discipline like boys in such a horrendous way like i think that that really does challenge this like general theory of the civil rights movement which was that like oh you know once people are educated on the injustice once people know more about how black people are treated then they will like change their ways um and and that's where i i did definitely see this as a critique of mlk and not just him as a person but like him as the symbol the sanitized like santa claus that cornell west talks about um and and the movement at large just because like you know though i i mean a main reason that the 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 mechanisms of nonviolence as a strategy worked was because of the television right and like cameras being able to show people all around the country and world like what was happening to black people um but then it's clear in elwood's case there are no cameras around and it failed horrendously right um and as much as he was holding on to it like in the spirit of it um the reality of his situation and the situation for a lot of black people is just beyond cameras and beyond like what the news talks about um and i think that that's where like the real evil and like suffering of the system is um so so that's that's what i was thinking in terms of like you know where this story was coming from and the the potential argument that i was trying to make around like the legacy of king and the civil rights movement I mean, I, I definitely agree with you, uh, Jan. And I also just want to push you a bit and say, well, but is he really critiquing King or critiquing our false hope or our false belief, right, in this kind of like symbol of hope and, and the assumption that if you actually, you know, work the system in a certain way, that it's going to end up, right, in this positive manner. It's going to end up with a positive effect. And it sounds like he's saying no, right? Um, through Elwood, that it, it, gets, it actually gets murkier the more he tries to manipulate the system, right? In terms, of, especially once he's in Nickelwood or in the Nickel Academy, they try as he tries to manipulate it in terms of thinking through how do we get out. He finds himself sinking deeper and deeper, right, into into a, a hole that he can't get out of, which I think leads to certain, I think, dumb decision making. But in the end, there weren't any positive results from his negotiations. In other words, he had to actually escape, right, find his freedom in order to, to disrupt it, right? In other words, he couldn't disrupt it through so-called peaceful means, through strategizing, through negotiating with the system. He, he just had to say, I, I, I'm out of here. Yeah, for sure. Um... And I guess that's that's interesting too because Turner, as like his, you know, friend, and also the other side of the coin, right? Like the cynic, the person who's like way more practical, um, was not trying to escape at all. But then him being the one that was freed, I think, uh, really brought me to this point of 
recognizing that like as he grew older um you know a huge part of like his his character arc is about you know grieving i think and like healing little by little um given the trauma that he and like all those boys had experienced um and so back to miles's question of you know who is this book for uh i i did think that you know at least for me the answer was um everyone to the extent that you know like i i hadn't known this story before um and i think that there is definitely a grieving process that like has started for me just in recognizing all of the like children who have been like robbed of their childhoods as professor johnson said um because you know uh, again like as we relate to the civil rights movement and just like how we regard certain people as symbols like you know I, I think a lot of that has to fall away when you recognize all of the people who like who who passed away like prematurely really right and who died um fighting for that cause but never got recognized for it either so yeah and i also thought miles because initially i i had questions too in terms of who's the, who is this really written for but after reading you know the novel I began to even question once again my own sense of well of, 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 of how do I discipline my own children in terms of as as a parent and again I we don't use corporal punishment in our, in our household but I know that it's such you know the norm right for many households in this country both you know of all races um, and but more importantly the not simply corporal punishment, but the ways in which we discipline kids to try to prevent them from failure. And the ways in which, or the precariousness of, of how anti-blackness works, I just don't think in light of that, what I do at home will prevent them from facing certain obstacles. So in other words, so like, no matter what I end up doing, they're still gonna have to face a certain reality that and they most likely won't have all the tools to deal with it in a way that I would want. In other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, I just think we have to really, it forced me to think as a parent, I really have to show more love to my children in the sense that while I, I, I want to protect them from all these you know, harms, mm-hmm. in the long run, I'm not sure I can do that. And so maybe the best way then is to really try to work on this idea of unconditional love without the fear right uh, of their demise but for so many of us we discipline our kids and, and we manage our households with this expectation or this fear that here's what's going to happen to them now let me try to prevent that and in trying to prevent these horrific things from happening i think we implement a, a kind of disciplinarity that this forecloses any possibilities of them becoming, I think, real freedom fighters because they're on edge all the time. <laughs> um, I'm not sure this makes any sense or if, if I'm even coherent. Yeah. But this is how I, I how, how I dealt with it because you know I grew up in a, you know in a household where people use belts, and again we all know the organs of you know of, of, of whipping slaves and the belts. But to read it again, it was just another reminder. It's one thing to read it as a as a person without children, and when you read it with children, you're like wow. I mean, it's even more illuminating. 
And um, I just want to talk to all my relatives and say, look, this is why I think we should not have this kind of practice in our communities. Um, but people just, they're just resistant. And so, I, and I know clearly author is not dealing with this, but this is how, when I, when I, when I saw those scenes and, you know, we read the scenes about in the White House, it just, just brought me back to, as a kid, in terms of how, you know, I was dealt with, how my cousins were dealt with. And I'm not sure that kind of punishment made us better human beings. But yet when we deal with our children, the first thing we do is, okay, we got we to gotta punish them hard so that they know you can make this mistake. So Whitehead, through his characters, just reminded me of this idea that punishing children with, with the hopes of sort of showing them how to avoid or preventing them from, you know, falling down certain paths. It just it doesn't work. I mean, it, it just, I, yeah, for some reason, that, that's what I took away from the White House, right? I mean, I recognize, you know, so structurally what's going on in terms of with imprisonment and juvenile detention centers, but also as a parent, it just reminded me of, of how important it is to kind of really rethink how we discipline kids, even when you're just, you know, taking away privileges, right? Um, because I think so much of what's driving us has everything to do with wanting to prevent our kids from ending up at a place, right? Like the Nichols Detention Center. Follow-up question. Because um, oh, I, I honestly was thinking about that as well, not for myself, because I don't have kids, but for you, because I knew we were going to be talking to you. Um, and, you know, you, you have some some beautiful children, right? And I guess I'm just curious, how is that process actually going of like, you know, treating them with more and more love, releasing more and more of that fear, right? Um, given your own experiences as a child, as well as, you know, being a partner, raising kids too. No, it, it's a, um, it's a journey, man. Um, and I mean, fortunately I have my wife who provides a really great balance, um, in terms of, you know, helping me to really monitor, um, I think my response, but I, I'm more and more, I'm really trying to materialize this idea of not parenting through fear, but parenting with love. And, and, and I think it's going to take you know, another 50 years to kind of perfect it. But that's been my goal over the last, you know, year or two, because I'm, I'm realizing that I, just, I don't think the other method works. And even, I mean, even just in terms of like this idea, okay, I'm going to take away privileges, right? Um, that's like the go-to in our household, but I'm realizing uh, that's another, that can be another form of violence. And again, I don't want to overly dr dr dramatize something that is not that is somewhat minor, but I think the, the bigger point, I think, which is far more universal, is the idea that for African-American families, we just motivate it by so much fear, with this fear of, again, imprisonment, with this fear of loss in terms of death, right? A sudden death, an expected death of your children. Um, and, and it's a whole fear that, oh, they won't succeed in school. So there's so many impediments that we come into the context with. Their kids have no idea. 
they're just, they, they were just born and, you know, born. And, and now we're trying to raise them as individuals, but yet we bring all of these sort of worlds with us, with our parenting. And, you know, it's hard. I think that's such a beautiful just parenting philosophy. And, I, you know, Jan and I, in, in the past year, I've talked a lot about, like, our inner, our inner child. And I, I feel like thinking about what we do to how we behave to children is so important because, you know, we are all still, you know, not to sound cliche, but still carrying around, you know, our own memories of what it's like to be a child, right? So, and we know that how formative, you know, those years are to our entire being. And in a, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, folks never really grow out of whatever love or fear was you know projected onto them as a child. Like most folks are really frozen in whatever happens during you know that early stage of, of their life. So like I don't know it's, that that's just an incredibly important way to a way to see it. And do you think his grandmother played a role? Because I was torn in terms of. I felt like I, I was reading like a little bit of Richard Wright's mother, mm. the very beginnings with the grandmother in terms of, you know, she seemed a bit strict, you know, like kind of the stereotypical black woman working very hard, but yet, you know, a little distant. Um, and I wonder how that played into it. Cause I remember, you know, she would visit him, you know, um, at the detention center, but it seemed a bit kind of, again, remote. I think, I think the last time she visited, he gave her this kind of, he wanted to give her a longer hug, but he was like, well, I have to stop because people are watching. But I, but I felt as if that relationship was a bit strange because at least stereotypically, you know, I think of grandmothers and grandsons having an extraordinary relationship. Um, and I didn't quite feel a huge connection between them. I couldn't figure out why. Did you guys experience that as well? Mm. No, I I feel the exact same same way. I mean, not to spoil the story for any viewers, you know, even even though Turner and Elwood are not the same person, like I felt the same coldness of of love between Turner and Millie and Harry and Elwood just given what both happened to them in that, in that school, like, you know, the, the epilogue scene with Millie and, and, and Turner seems, you know, very heartfelt, but again, it just feels like in the way that it's written, uh, removed of any, um, sentimentality still. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. Because I forget, I forget what scene, but I think at some point when Elwood mentions that he he's either keeping a journal or there's, I don't remember the exact scene, but there's a moment where Turner was like, well, you realize if you do that, I'm going to get in trouble, right? And Elwood didn't seem to have any like sense of, well, no, you won't, because this is like the right thing to do. It was like this kind of strange ethics that didn't take into account that his, his boy might, you know, get in trouble because of his sort of ethical behavior. And, and you're right. And so it's a strange kind of like distance between them. And I'm wondering, was that purposeful given 
right, the degree of sexual assault in that detention center. And, and maybe then the boys have to operate in a way in which, you know, everything is very practical, but can't, the relationship can't go beyond a kind of general, you know, um, you know, talking trash to each other. They can't, really can't have any depth to it. And I'm wondering, was that the technique, was that the design by the author? Yeah, I, I have no idea if it was intentional. Um, but, you know, there's, there's one sentence in particular that nudged me into like my own interpretation, which was he made a comment at some point about how they were all there. And yet, like each, each boy was like the only person that was there. Um, and I thought that signified like, just the isolation that's like imbued into that school and and really the the country at large um where you know in particular all those kids are so like traumatized and in survival mode that they really don't have much capacity for like actually building relationships with each other or with their family um if they had them in the first place right because that was a huge piece of it too which was that like a lot of these kids were wards of the state you know their parents had left them or you know, couldn't take care of them or, you know, were in prison themselves. So, um, you know, I, I think in general, uh, I interpret it as a story of just how like the, the structure of what was going on at that time, um, withheld people from really being able to build relationships and, um, and that, and as well as that, like that latent trauma, right. Cause then you see it into like Turner, um, and Millie's relationship. Um, but, you know, I, I, like, I, 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 I have no way of knowing, you know, how intended that was. I just think that um, this idea of like isolation and capacity to love is something that I think a lot about um, today in, in our current moment, right? Just in terms of like, you know, uh, recognizing that we all have like a lot of work that we're trying to do and you got to make money to support yourself and feed your family, right? But then how much time does that leave uh, how much space is created for you know maintaining you know relationships that matter to you um that that was just where i went with it but you know that that's my interpretation as you were talking jan i began thinking about this idea well do you only find freedom in death um and, and, and what does that really mean finding freedom in death and is your capacity to love only realized when you're, when you're no longer here? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that makes me just think of the, of course, very strong Christian imagery throughout this novel. I mean, you got Griff, um, who's a martyr, you know, Whitehead talks about how everyone, all of the black kids saw, saw them, saw themselves and Griff, you know, very much taking on to, you know, all the sins, you know, him being laid out by his wrist on the tree. And, you know, of course, uh, at the end with Elwood, you know, when he shot, his arms are wide, all this. And, 
this idea, you know, I don't know. I, it just gives this idea that, you know, our blood, again, is, is what's supposed to save America. It's through our, our blood that, you know, America will finally have salvation. And right. And this is and this is and this is what really gets to the heart of my college question, who is this for? Because I think in all the criticism that I read of the book, also felt anemic. Like it just felt like, oh yes, like this book is a must-read, great connection to black, black matter, you know, all about the violence towards blacks, um, haunting, all this. And I'm just like, it just feels like, oh, that's, that, that's like what a white person wants to get out of this book, you know, I guess to feel a little bit better. Um, and, but then for me, I'm just here sitting, sitting with it. I'm just like, right. I just come up with the same idea that freedom is only achievable through death. You know, this is, and then right, Elwood's, Elwood's name is the name that lives on right through Turner. So. Yeah. I mean, that's uh that I mean that that question really does shake me to my core um and you know I yeah maybe maybe it's hopeful or naive but I I would say that like I really I really do hope that uh freedom can be found in relationship or in something like related to living right and being able to actually embody and enjoy it and share it with other people um you know maybe maybe the story of like nickel boys uh, and like the nickel nickel academy is convincing uh these these children that freedom is only through death right um but i i just feel like the 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 lasting note that i took away from the book was you know turner finally expressing his name to millie and in kind of like you know, taking that leap of faith to just like open up and kind of go beyond, you know, his like adopted identity uh, was kind of an expression of freedom, right? In that sense of like finally showing who he was and, and for her to be able to like receive it as, you know, reporter style as it felt, um, I, I thought was like, you know, a, a little bit of hope in, in a larger, in a more, you know, proportionally like devastating story. Yeah, and, and I'm reminded, uh, I think on page 155, this is the second paragraph, this one line, just kind of just threw me a bit. It says, he writes, life at Nickel, referring to Elwood, had slowed to an obedient shuffle. And this is, you know, when it, feel, it seems like he's never going to get out of there. But when I read that, we re reread it, this idea that your life is slowed to an obedient shuffle. I really, I began to think, wow, is that my life in the academy, right? Is that the life of most middle-class African-Americans, right, who are, who find themselves in corporate settings or in, you know, some kind of bureaucracy that these systems seem to just eat at you until you have no sense of, of, of self or of community. Um, and I keep going back to this idea that as we think we're, we're nego negotiating a system, that and as we think we're trying to disrupt it, I'm wondering, 
are we simply still shuffling, right? Um, you know, are all these acts simply extensions of an obedient shuffle? And part of it is because we're, we're, we're constantly fighting with something outside of ourselves. And, and it's only when you are, say, writing a book or, you know, producing your music or producing your art that you're actually trying to produce something, you're battling something from your interiority, and you're trying to make it real flesh, right? Make it something very tangible. And that kind of engagement is far more life-giving, even if it's so-called, even if you fail at it, but it's still life-giving because it's an extension, right, uh, of your own intellect, spirit, of your values. Whereas when you're working with a system, right, that, that never intended for it, your presence, even if you are so-called successful at it, you're still locked and confined. And you may ex extend the bars, but it's still not designed for complete liberation or for that matter, designed for your people. And that's sort of like that image of, of an obedient shuffle. It just, you know, it, it, was, it was almost, you know, um, can knock the wind out of you unless you're able to find a way to extend yourself in terms of your interiority within these academic places or within whatever bureaucracy you find yourself in so i think the idea of trying to fight it fight with the system i know we have to do it but i think it eats away and at some point if not at all points you are still, right, doing exactly what Elwood did. Find yourself in this obedient shuffle. And I'm thinking about, you know, all the great people who've been elected recently to, to Congress and all the battles they're facing, right, as they're trying to exert their voice, like Cory Bush, right, uh, from Missouri, former Black Lives Matter activist, and all the ways in which she's negotiating, right? She's a congresswoman. Yes, she's still an activist and fighting against, you know, this old system, man, that's based on <laughs> everything but our freedom. It, it, it's nerve-wracking. And even as, you know, even with all, all the protests, I wonder, are the protests simply obedient shuffles because it's, it's what is expected of us? A lot there. Because... Because, you know, Lord, Audrey Lord was like, you know, maybe the system, no, you know, maybe no more tinkering is necessary. You have to rebuild. But I'm not sure we really want to rebuild because it means, you know, we have to get, we have to give up all, all of our nice luxuries. Yep. And, and what rebuild, rebuild to what? Medicare for all? Is that really, is that, I don't know. So anyway, I'm not, I don't want to get into areas that I'm not prepared to fully debate or discuss, but I, I, I just found that line really moving, and um, it kind of like forced me to look in the mirror. Well, of course, I cannot respond to the profundity of everything that you said, but like, it seems like resistance is, is a little commodified, right? Fits into the same grooves that we all know, same sense of shock, and has become 
just as banal in like its futility and like a, in like a sense. Um, because right after a while, when when fighting so tiring and fighting seems so futile. And and now you forced me to go back to the question you raised at the beginning, Miles, in terms of to whom is this book written? Because I'm I'm trying to think, do we get any moments from Elwood of of, of not fighting, of, of kind of like I don't want to say normalcy, but of any kind of light, right? Or any sense of like knowledge production. Like we know about his aspirations and we know, you know, um, that he's really smart, but like, do we really get into his skin? And as you were talking about this idea of, of, you know, how resistance can really dull people and really, in some ways, resistance is kind of what it's expected, especially resistance in a kind of nonviolent way. I wonder then, you know, it goes forcing me to go back to the question, well, to whom is it written? And, and do we get a sense of the life, like the lifeblood of the community through Elwood, you know, through his family? And I don't, I think I need to reread it. I don't know if I, if I get a sense of his life. And as you were talking, I, I thought of Baldwin's sort of fight with Richard Wright in terms of not another protest novel. And while I don't think it's necessarily a protest model, it, it protest novel, I do think it is an attempt to expose to America and the world, right, as you mentioned, this very brutal system in terms of how we've harmed, you know, our boys and detention centers. And yet, there's something, there's something missing in terms of their, um, their humanity. And I think a part of what's missing is, is that it's a real reality that they don't have a humanity, which is what I think the author did a great job of showing. And at the same time, I do think there is this, there's always this veiled, right, veiled life. Um, there's, there's always these sort of sub-narratives that allow us to see the humanity of these characters. And I, I need to reread it to find out if, if, I, if they're there. Writing, especially novels, and what I found in fiction, like writing is supposed to be not apolitical, but I mean, like, as a piece of art, it seems like folks just kind of, kind of write in um, their own meaning and their own political views into the story and make it fit however they want. And the purpose of, you know, his writing, his writing style or, you know, the coldness or any of these things that we've talked about, like, it, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say whether it's an intentional, like, blank canvas for the reader to, you know, project what, whatever meaning or if it's right that's the that's the way he's trying to get the reader to interpret so right i, I don't even know if re rereading this novel i would i would just harden my first impressions and miles i'm wondering also what we're reading is his imagination um which is clearly you know quite wide and expansive and, and brilliant and yet, I wonder if had he interviewed some of the survivors, would he have written something different? 
because I listened to an interview and I was shocked. And he said, I, in one interview that he hadn't, he read all the interviews and all the articles about it, but he hadn't interviewed any, like personally, any of the survivors. And I wonder if that was a missed opportunity. Again, but as an artist, who might say, well, I don't have to do this. This is, this is, this is a fiction, you know, it's a fiction piece of work. But again, if you actually, if he had interviewed the people, I wondered if, you know, he would produce something very different. Yeah, and, you know, you, you brought up Morrison earlier, and she tells the story of writing Beloved, and she had just seen, like, a small news clip of, you know, the story being uncovered of, of a mother, you know, killing her child, and she doesn't do any more research past yeah. that. She just, right, uses her imagination. Like, of course, she can't interview like that that person but right given that it is a more current a more present more modern situation where, where where these folks are still alive and still grappling with this very brutal history i think i think that 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 is a very good question to to, to ask that morrison story just was what first came to mind because it you know paralleled it but and what do you guys think of Turner living a lie at the very end? You know, like we discussed, well, I don't want to say too much, but this whole idea of Elwood and Turner, it, I mean, is it a sense of really trying to expose our kind of our, the nuances of human life? Or, you know, are we really talking about someone who, who robs someone of a, of, a, of a kind of identity? And didn't face his own demons because he was living through potentially a person he idolized, right? Cared for, potentially loved, and yet he just subsumed him instead of actually walking with him. I'm not sure that makes sense, but there's a way in which it seems like Turner subsumes Elwood. Um, and it seems as if that's also another kind of metaphor in terms of how we often behave right as as, as creatures where we, we find an idol or when we have a moment right or, or, or we discover right a favorite artist and then we begin to mimic that person um how does that then take away from our own life force um but also like to think more broadly about it, you know, when do we actually have moments um, in our intellectual lives to really come to terms with our so-called identity or our so-called, you know, kind of background, whatever led us to this particular moment, you know, for you at Sanford and for Janet at Georgetown, do we get a sense of figure out, okay, so this is what brought me here. Now, how do I then begin to wrestle with it to figure out are there other voices right within this 21 year old 23 year old sort of body that i now need to hear uncover and grapple with and as you said mentioned earlier miles it seems as if we end up reliving our lives based on maybe five years of our, our childhood or, or living our lives based on a particular encounter with dad or a particular encounter with mom or 
the absence, right, of a grandparent and what that might mean. And so, so that's why so I'm torn with the book. But I do think, depending on how you read it, there are many different ways to kind of walk away from this. But Turner in particular, I think, is a really interesting kind of study because, I mean, to, to take on that identity, right? Um, and it sounds like he's successful in part because he takes on that kind of hopeful, <laughs> king-like strategy. And then at the very end, he's like, I've got to come to terms with this because it's kicking my butt. It's like, it's like this ghost that won't go away. And so to take it beyond the novel, then the question is, again, when do we wrestle with, right, that, whatever you call it, identity, the voice, right, um, that is, sits in tension with, but is also buried underneath all the other voices that pushed you all to a place like Georgetown, to a place like Stanford, from you now miles to a place like Oxford. Because I would argue that you didn't, you're not there only because you had a desire. I would say you're probably there more so because there are all these other des- people who had desires for you. And now the question is, how do we, again, very grateful for it, but what do we then, what do we do to like know what is, what is leading me now, now that I'm about to really mature in terms of, okay, I need to take care of myself financially. You know, emotionally, you know, what, what, how do you determine what that new self is or the soul is, however you want to describe it? Um, and again, it's never going to be completely right, separated from family, from other voices. And yet, if we don't try to figure out what the other voice is, I think you're right. We're going to keep reliving a certain part of our childhood narrative. And I think for Turner, it was this idea of. I mean, he couldn't, the lie was just too much. Even though it was probably a benign lie, it was still something that ate him up. Yeah, I, I actually couldn't tell, um, like, which lie was eating him up. If it was the, the Elwood piece or just the experience as a whole, because he hadn't talked about it with anybody. Um, and you know, I, I think, you know, that it was mentioned in the book, right, where he kind of adopted his name to, like, honor his life. Um, and Turner just being the person he was, it seemed like he really didn't have any respect or admiration for anybody else because everyone was, like, a threat um, or had the potential to be a threat. So, you know, kind of, and you know, coming out to, coming out of, the whole nickel academy experience and like looking up to elwood and you know subsuming um him i think was really uh an interesting idea of like incorporating or almost like embodying like a double consciousness right where like turner on his own probably you know wouldn't have like accomplished all the things if he wasn't keeping himself in conversation with elwood even after he passed away um, and obviously Elwood wouldn't have continued on either if it wasn't for Turner's like memory. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I guess that was just, uh, an interesting way of showing how, you know, we are inherently like relational, right. We depend on the people around us. Um, and given the fact that these kids didn't have many, like, you know, friends or people that they could rely on 
otherwise, like the fact that they were able to make that bond was like pretty special. But Jan, did you get to the, how do you then wrestle with that doubleness, right? And clearly the doubleness is very layered, but um, and maybe that's up for us now as the reader to kind of to extend what uh, Whitehead has done in this novel, but I, I'm still uncertain in terms of, you know, under what conditions then do we actually disclose, right? Our different truths. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was, that was the only thing that I read in terms of background on the book was that uh, Whitehead saw Elwood and Turner as like the two sides of himself. Um, um, and so like, if you think of it that way, right, like he used his own double consciousness to create something um, in the spirit of what you were talking about before around like the freedom in creation, right? Like bringing that, that, that tension, that paradox within you and like sharing it with other people. Um, and I would say that's probably, I, I think that's what Turner was doing as well, just by like creating the businesses that he did um, and, you know, making something of his life. Right. So uh that's my that's my first response to that is like in terms of how do you deal with that long term right which is um i guess you know creating things yeah. out of out of that tension do you all do you all think that turner would come forward with the truth if the new story like never never broke like mm. the, the the remains were never found because it seems like that's the true cause, right? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's a good question. Because uh, yeah. we all have a breaking point, right? Yeah. Where something external will, will trigger a memory or, or trigger the, the lie. But then it also like, reminds me of this, the kind of the curiousness of life, because one would think, why wouldn't Elwood survive? Is he's like the one who did everything in the correct way. And yet Turner is the one who actually, you know, appears to have won. Right. And maybe that's kind of a trite way to look at it, but in terms of materially, it's kind of like, wow, Elwood, I mean, nothing seemed to work in your favor. And you appeared to be the least like scarred. Yeah, I think that was a, you know, this is a quick aside, but that was an interesting juxtaposition with Earl, the staff, because, you know, he was in his 90s, right? And he was lying, basically, about um, what, what he had done to the, to the kids. And you kind of see the same, or it's kind of the same question of, like, how folks grapple lied to them to them to themselves about things over long periods of time and you know we we all know he's a terrible terrible person um did all the wrong things and right wait wait what didn't he end up being um some counselor at some school and I'm, I'm trying to think what happened to him it seemed like he had lived you know he won like he won like an award uh for right. like you know citizen of the year 
I think he, <laughs> he might have been mayor. I, I might be mixing people up. Um, but no, he definitely went on to like live a, a quote unquote decent life, um, yeah, right. hiding hiding all of the lies. Right. And I wonder why Elwood did. I'm just, I just turned this page at the very end on two hundred, where 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 uh, right, author writes Elwood hadn't tried to contact his former teacher after he got to nickel. Uh, his lawyer had promised to track him down, but the man uh, knew people, people in SNCC and those in the Reverend King's circle. L would have failed, but he had no choice but to take up the challenge again. If he wanted ch things to change, what else was there to do but stand up? Initially, I didn't see his desire to run away as standing up. Because he's running away, right? Because they're coming to get him. Because of the letter. I saw it as, you know, I'm fleeing for my life. And I think, but he otherwise would not have done so, right? Had he not written the letter or had, you know, um, something positive worked out once the, I forget the counselor, whoever read, read the letter or someone from the state office. And so again, the question is, you know, who is that with? How is he thinking? Because I, I don't, this is not to me uh, an example of what it means to stand up courageously. What would be uh, an example of that for you? You know, I don't know. I think in line with Elwood's character, I would have assumed. He would have just he would have stayed right and and tried to build something right in within the detention center, whether it's you know a book club or whether it's sort of organizing something under undercover underground, but he never appeared to be the person who's going to stand up and like and flee right or certain principled reasons because it seems like for him even if you're wrongly convicted if you work within the system and apply due process right and, and you follow the procedures he believes that there's a positive outcome and that seems to be his mo throughout the novel but at the very end he decides well i really don't want to die which i wonder well when you write this letter you really, I mean, it seems like it's pretty naive to think you're not going to receive some backlash. If no one's protected you up to this point, who's going to protect you? Why should they, why do you think, why should you feel compelled to think that you'll get protection after you've written this letter? You know, or, or why wouldn't you send the letter to his attorney? It, it seems like there's this constant desire to appeal to the system because he wants the system to work. I mean, he really desperately wants it to work. And I would say that's probably the thoughts, you know, and the beliefs of most of my students. They really want the system to work, even despite all the evidence to the contrary. But you keep appealing to it hoping that it's so-called better angels will surface. 
<laughs> Why are you laughing, Jeff? All right, though, we just, uh, uh, a few conversations ago, we were talking about um, Pinker, like Steven Pinker, better angels of our nature. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we really don't mess with him that much. But like, <laughs> so we were laughing because I said that, like, oh, if I see him like giving a blurb on a book, like recommending it, like, I just, I won't mess with the book either because I'm just like, I, I don't know if I have time for this, you know, don't have the emotional capacity. <laughs> <laughs> quick aside yeah no but think about all your friends right i mean this is how most middle class people are thinking let's tweak the system and appeal to it and it's interesting that he he again it's interesting he wouldn't appeal to the former school teacher given that the school teacher seemed to have this great you know network of cynic leaders and of King himself. So it's strange he didn't go there, which then bring, calls into question, how much did he really value, right? The geniuses within his own community. But yet he blindly assumes that this letter, this journal, if given to these you know, overseers will somehow changes the situation and i find that most of my students operate right in a very similar way it seems like elwood's honestly big personal challenge is this love of enemy right and if and if we're talking about systems systems being our enemies Loving our enemy, you know, doesn't in that in that case doesn't really make any sense. Um, yeah, I don't. Is it love, Miles, or is it a kind of strange admiration? Hmm. Because he's he's definitely critical, clearly critical of the corruption, and yet he seems to believe that. There's something within the kind of democratic proceduralism that will, you know, wipe out the corruption. Yeah, I think it, it might even be like this leap of faith for you know the over overseers to you know, you know, to see that same, you know aspiration of humanity in him you know he wants them to elevate to his same you know morality you know to, to get that slant of light and you know feel like oh man like i'm freed as soon as i free him you know like yeah i think he, he has hope in that revelation and kind of takes that on himself as like a responsibility to let them see to see this light you know that's that's just me reading into it but but I would say King and Snick, they didn't necessarily appeal to the overseer, but they were appealing to the masses, hoping that the masses, right, through varying forms of boycotts, would then force the system, right, to bend it towards mm-hmm. its moral will. Whereas Elwood forgot about that important 
sort of step within nonviolent protest. Right. That you can't have, you, the protest must also include, right, some form of boycott or some expression, right, of um, bringing the system to its knees. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, this is great to be talking about just like what this interpretation of, of King means. Uh, I, I, I totally uh, agree with you. Um, but I mean, you had folks, of course, during his time, Malcolm X included calling him an Uncle Tom. Right. So and even when you think of how, you know, white conservatives use King and his message now, like there's always an interpretation that, again, does appeal to the same critique that, you know, folks have about black Christianity in general, you know, just getting them to love their oppressors, making them docile, weak, turning this, you know, this turning the other cheek that really just ends up making black people not respected. Elwood's interpretation, I think is right. It's right in some some ways, but I guess the radical component of it, he, he didn't even have time to grow into or to really learn. Like, you know, he's he's hearing these messages, these speed speeches from the record, um, reading reading stuff from the Life magazine, but he just doesn't even have time to like learn really from experience what any of these things mean in practice well i want to turn return to the um the graveyard scene as we wrap up because mm. it, the more we talk about this novel actually the, the more i like it please say <laughs> yeah i really came in this not like what i think yeah i think there's there's really and this the thing too, like I, I'm so glad we're talking because I feel like again, there's so much here, so much more here than what I read in reviews and other critiques. It just seemed like all of those were meant to sell books and yeah. not really to get readers to think about it. I think yeah. we're very much in a culture now of like, oh, let's feel bad about things so we can feel good about them later. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, yeah. No, you're right. You're right, Miles. Yeah. Um, and and the graveyard scene is because, like, at the very end, it's like he returns to like there's another form of death, right? Right. In terms of Elwood dies again as he discloses who who, who he, his real identity. Um, but I also wonder, like, the hotel. Initially, I was really upset about the ending. Like, what's going on? You just go to the hotel room. I don't get. You don't talk about the press conference or what happens afterwards, but. There's something very powerful thinking about the graveyard and then the very ending in terms of the disclosure, right, uh, of your, quote, true identity or of, your, or of your given name. And that disclosure is another kind of death because now he has to start all over, right, in terms of, is it Millie, right, um, disclosing, okay, well, then who are you? If this is if this is not your given name, and this you know, what does this mean for us? What and who and what does it mean in terms of your own coming to terms with, right, um, the Nickel Detention Center? So, so I think it's a little. I think it's clever, but it also leaves us with this kind of I think uh, 
kind of ringing in the ear, right? Because you think about the grave site and the grave and graves. Not only do you like see visually, right, the symbols of people who have passed away, but there's also a reckoning that must happen, right? When you return to a, a grave site and you begin to hear, right, through your visualization of either your constructive memory of what happened or of your, or for Elwood Turner, reckoning with what really happened to you. Um, and that's often what happens when we go to a grave site, right? We, there are all these things that we were turning over in our head and we're hearing different things and, and we're grappling with um, all that's disclosed. And so I think in that context, it really captures um, a good portion of who we are. And also, I think discloses how you said, Miles, very eloquently, this idea that what Elwood doesn't really come to get to experience all that he just, you know, discovered through, you know, the records and, and reading and hearing about King. And yet, that to me is so often what happens to a lot of us, right? Um, we get a glimpse of something, and yet we never come or have the opportunity to really experience it um, and, to, and to really appreciate it. I mean, think about, think about all the people like who will say, yeah, you know, at, at, at a, a parent's funeral, well, now I understand, or now I wish, or I didn't understand, and I wish I could. It's, it, I think we're always left when someone dies with so many holes that we can never refill. Well, for that matter, you guys can say, what are the holes that are left from Georgetown and Stanford? <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, right? Um, <laughs> so um, I did have like one question and then we can for sure get into that one. Um, but if you were, if you had like, let's say a magic wand and were designing and building out your own dream school, what would it look like? Um, how would, you know, students and teachers be treated? You know, how would they treat each other? Um, what, what would be your general like philosophy and vision for for a school? Well, I mean, that's a really hard question. Um, you know, I would say it would be a combination of, um, of Morehouse and Haverford, right? This idea of where on the one hand, you have professors like at Morehouse, at least when I was there, who deeply, deeply loved the institution um, and went there with the kind of mission orientation. I think there's some limits to that mission orientation, but it, it nonetheless assume that we are here to help create right a new generation or the next generation of certain kind of leadership um and that care and attention i think uh are missing from so-called elite white elite white institutions in part because they see themselves as simply you know rubber stamping right one's trajectory whereas places like howard and spellman and prairie view see themselves as no, we were actually trying to redesign and design a new future in light of, right, a particular past. So the idea of having a certain kind of vision for the student body um, 
and clearly you're going to constantly tweak the vision i would say it's that's part of the vision i think we need right at liberal arts colleges um you know i i would also say i would imagine a place where students are given way more um access in the classroom to the professor but also um validate it for their own intellectual worth and that we validate the kind of the backgrounds that they bring to the classroom and figure out how to actually um, weave that into their whole academic career so that you know part of going to college and this it's not anything new but it's following a very kind of classical model in which you know the assumption is you're going for not simply to get refined before really a transformative moment and that that's the search and you're searching for it's not one thing but you're searching for these different elements right i think of uh ralph waldo emerson's like the divinity school address with right? this whole idea that you know you don't, you're not here to mimic you're here to learn this material and then use it to produce something new so that's my kind of vision for what a kind of transformative liberative you know curriculum and institution look like and I would say, lastly, um, it, would, it would really kind of try to reconstitute community because right now, I just think we're, we're also focused on getting to a particular end as individuals, and there's no collective sense that we are all trying to tweak different projects. Um, and. I found that when I was at a small liberal arts school like Morehouse or Haverford, that was some, you, you could find aspects of, the, of that, that there, those places. I'm not saying those places were perfect, um, but that was a part of the general ethos. And I would say at Research One University, it's much harder, right? In part, just because of the nature of the beast. Um, and yet, you know, you can find elements of it there, right? But I would say HBCUs and the Rhodes Colleges do a far better job, in part because you know they're forced to it. That's all they have are undergrad. Um, most HBCUs in terms of the Rhodes Colleges. So yeah, so that, that, that's that, that's my my vision. And again, it needs tweaking, but you know, um, I would say those are kind of the core ingredients that I find are helpful. And then I will include one last thing. And again, this is all very simple stuff. But it's this idea that when people, when the kids come to you, right, that you have to have a certain set of expectations in terms of what you're going to give them and what you expect back from them. And without that kind of dialogical relationship, it's just, just a person standing in front of you, just giving you information and just dumping things into your life. And it's usually meaningless, right? But if we have a classroom setting or a community setting where it's a constant engagement going back and forth and we're trying to get different answers i just think it produces a far more kind of generative experience and that was my experience in morehouse i mean i was constantly going back and forth with a few professors and, and while i always knew they were like way smarter but i also knew they also wanted to hear what i had to say and it just kind of changed my perspective it kind of gave me a level of confidence and um and just but also I grew my admiration for them even grew even more because I knew they respected me. And at the end of the day, there was no question that they wanted me to succeed. No question. 
Thank you so much for listening to this new episode of The Book That Blank. You can go buy Terrence Johnson's new book, We Testify With Our Lives, How Religion Transformed Radical Thought from Black Power to Black Lives Matter on pals.com. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a five-star review and tell us how you like the show. If you're listening to it on Spotify, also go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to tell us how it's going. Thank you again, and we'll catch you next time.